Hello, and welcome to another episode of Captain Roy's Rocket Radio Show, Crash, the UK podcast for the culture geek, technology nerd, and creative wizard. This is episode 326, recorded on Friday the 31st of July 2020 at 23.19.22. It's hot again, and very humid, it still is now it was a hot and humid day and it's a hot and humid night global warming is definitely a thing as we've said many many times in this show and of course i chose to be right in the middle of this current heat wave to restart the work on my garden because mad dog's an englishman i also seem to have a cold in one nostril i don't know if that's actually possible or is that a sinus infection Whatever it is, according to the NHS website, it is not coronavirus, and it is mild, so perhaps I should stop moaning about it. And while we're on health, actually weaning myself off a reflux medication, dealing with migraines, hot weather, the coronavirus, and the general hell that is life, isn't as bad as usual. That either means I've given up, or that I'm coping with it. I'm not sure if those are different things, or the same thing, or the same thing seen from different angles. A more positive angle, perhaps? Anyway, enough waffle. Strap yourself down, take your medication, we're going in. Let's start with culture. This week I have two comics to talk about, the first of which is The Light Fantastic, a graphic novel adaptation of Terry Pratchett's book of the same name. It's a sequel to the first Discworld novel, The Colour of Magic. It was a random buy from Milton Keynes Central Library because they appear to have a perpetual book sale from a stamp inside my copy. It originated from Bletchley Library. And that's why I only have the sequel I can't remember exactly when I bought it, but I think it was a year or so ago. Not quite sure. My battered old copy is from 1998. It's a paperback reprint by Corgi Books. It is printed on nice heavyweight paper. Heavier weight paper than the second comic book that I'm going to talk about this week. And it smells absolutely fantastic. That old papery comic lovely smell. In the light fantastic, we follow Rincewin, the wizard, on which I base my Dungeons and Dragons character, and Two Flower, on which I base my Net Hack character, the tourist. They are continuing their calamitous adventures on and off Discworld. In fact, it starts with Two Flower in a spaceship off Discworld, and Rincewin floating through space in a spacesuit. It then morphs into an unintentional quest to prevent the destruction of Discworld by reading out the spells of an extremely powerful grimoire. At one point, there's an amusing scene of reverse racism when Twoflower calls the massive stones that make up the druid's computer ethnic. Over... The years I have read most of the Discworld series, so I already have a general idea of the setting, characters, and plots. I haven't read many of the graphic novels. 
This one has bright and punchy colours and the art is halfway between Josh Kirby's distinctive cover art style used for the novels and something that is a bit more human-centric and easier on the eye. The second thing that I read this week is Snowfall. This is still the same Joe Harris and Martin Morazzo and others comic book from the Image Comics series I mentioned years ago in pod 128 from 2016. I then bought the trade a few less years ago, then actually started reading it this year in pod 316, but have only just finished. And when I say have only just finished, I mean I have only just finished this a few minutes ago. Yes, that's how long it takes me to finish something, sometimes. In it we find a future run by a single corporation, in which global warming has killed the weather and the environment and the ecosystem. In that future, a young student investigates the disappearance of an enigmatic weather-controlling supervillain. All hell then breaks loose as a cybernetically enhanced corporate goon is sent to retrieve the weather-controlling technology from that supervillain. And this all happens at that precise moment because although long dormant, the supervillain is now active again and committing destructive outrages. I said back in episode 316 that the art far outweighs the story, and I think it still does. I found the panel layout occasionally confusing, the text in places too small to read, I actually needed a magnifying glass, one is up with that, the dialogue stilted, and the plot rather too conventional for my taste. It's still worth buying the paperback trade, if only for the art, which is real eye candy. The art reminds me of the work of the late French comic book artist Mobius, that is, Jean Giraud. In fact, the story does seem a little like something he and his sometime collaborator, Chilean writer Alejandro Jodorowsky, might have made with some of Katsuhiro Otomo's Akira and a smidgen of Koji Suzuki's Ringu thrown in for good measure. And that's Snowfall. Before we move on to film, I must say that I'm quite chuffed with reading again. I've started reading other books as well quite some time ago, but these last two graphic novels were the first things that I've completed reading for ages and ages and ages, for a number of reasons that are too complicated to go into right now. Okay, let's move on to movies. And Greyhound. Greyhound is a film I've seen quite recently. In it, Tom Hanks is the first-time leader of a group of warships escorting freighters across the U-boat-riddled Atlantic during World War II. It's an efficient action movie. That's the kind of cliched things movie critics often say. Efficient. I'm sorry that I've used it here myself. I'm hanging my head with shame. There's lots of interesting nautical stuff going on as well. So yeah, of course, I enjoyed it. 
It's called Captain Roy's Rocket Radio Show. What did you expect? And that's Greyhound. Next, Shirley. This is a biopic snippet of author Shirley Jackson's life. It is a gothic psychological horror film. Appropriately enough for the author of The Haunting of Hill House. That all sounds great, except I hated it. I hated it because I didn't like anyone in the film. I didn't like Shirley's abusive, belittling husband. I didn't like Shirley's psychopathic mind games. I didn't like their guests slash victims. The pathetic academic butt liquor of a husband and his sexually confused fangirl wife. There was no one I could even slightly relate to, not even Shirley, the horror writer, which, given my creative interest, makes this film a failure. I found it hard to get through, and I was relieved when it was all over. I wish I hadn't watched it, because it's now going to be an effort not to let this discolour my future reading of her material. I know I've said, look at the art, not the artist, and I do that all the time, believe me. For a brown guy who's into rock and horror and genre in general and classical music, of course, I have to look past the creator and just look at the work they do. But ah, it is so annoying when you are, again, disappointed by someone. I don't know why I'm disappointed by anyone anymore, given my level of cynicism that I think I have but perhaps I don't. Not enough. As a vignette of predatory middle-class intelligentsia and academia, it does work because I know the academic environment, and you want to hear more about that later, but then so does films like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from 1966, which quite cleverly and evilly cast Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor because of their toxic on-screen chemistry, which was a result of their chaotic real-life relationship. And that is Shirley. Next, let's move on to documentary Rockfield. This is a one-off BBC feature-length documentary about the extraordinary rise of the iconic rural residential studio near the incredibly coincidentally named village of Rockfield in Wales. Yeah, there's actually a place called Rockfield. They didn't just rename it. You've probably seen this place portrayed in films like Bohemian Rhapsody, There was that bit in Bohemian Rhapsody where Roger Taylor's doing the falsetto bit in the song Bohemian Rhapsody, and there's also that bit where Roger Taylor and Freddie Mercury square off. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, Rockfield. It's worth watching if you're a bit of a rock nut like I am, and of course I enjoyed this. And you can catch that on iPlayer. Next, let's move on to television. I May Destroy You is written and stars Michaela Cole. It is a powerful and unsettling drama about sexual consent based on a personal traumatic incident. I don't know why I'm skirting around this. She was horribly assaulted. Rashomon-like, we see the assault from every angle, and also the many possible outcomes. Nothing is easy, and the protagonist is not easy to relate to. 
I watched it all, and that is I May Destroy You. Next, Detectorist. Three years after the show ended, I finally caught up and watched season two and three. Detectorist is a half-hour comedy written, directed, and starring Mackenzie Crook, the <laughs> one-eyed pirate from Pirates of the Caribbean and The Office. Do you remember in Pirates of the Caribbean? He had a wooden eye, which is bad because, as he said, I think it splinters something horrible. Detectorist follows the lives of a couple of Essex metal detector hobbyists, sifting through the history under their feet. The BAFTA award-winning series is a summary, sweet, rural, low-key series punctuated by some real-life out-loud moments. It's also psychotherapy for me. If you've listened to this podcast before, you'll know something about my brushes with academia. As a disillusioned ex-career archaeologist, the academic portion of which almost destroyed my love of history and my life, I'm really not exaggerating at all, which all means I have mixed to negative feelings about watching shows like Time Team. Fortunately, as one of the characters, Lance, played by Toby Jones, says, See, archaeologists, they gather up the facts, piece the jigsaw together, work out how we lived and find the buildings we lived in. But what we do, that's different. We unearth the scattered memories, mine for stories, fill in the personality. We're time travellers. I'd forgotten that when academia changed the course of my life almost a decade ago. Thanks to this show, I was reminded of why I love history. The next day after finishing the show, I spoke to my mum and we reminisced about our finds at our home in South East London many years ago. I might have more to say about this, but let's leave that for the future. And that's Detectorist. Well worth a watch, I think. Next, Torchwood. 14 years later, I finally caught up with this New Who spin-off. Whereas Doctor Who and the Sarah Jane adventures are aimed at children, the spin-off's class is aimed at teens and Torchwood at young adults and is swearier and bonkier than the other shows. Swearier and bonkier, I know. How old am I? The first episode of Torchwood saw an unfortunate victim of a serial killer brought back to life for just enough time to be told that he was already dead and only had two minutes of consciousness left. Well, that's great, isn't it? So, like Doctor Who and all its offshoots, despite its more adult orientation, we're in familiar science fiction horror territory. It's a Russell T. Davies show, so it's inclusive. I appreciate the little snippets he throws into the script just to make the world a better place. For example, there's a scene when a minor character says he'd rather hire hard-working Poles. The Cardiff setting 
with many overhead shots is also interesting and different as I have only driven through the city once before and I think that was at night and my Nissan Bluebird was mistaken for a taxi by a lot of drunk aggressive people and I count myself lucky to get away alive. I quite enjoyed the first two episodes, and in lieu of anything else who-ish to watch after my recent re-re-re new Who rewatch and current old Who rewatches, I'm probably intermittently going to watch an episode or two, something to do at dinner time, maybe. I'm not sure whether I'm going to do that. Actually, I have other things to do, but it's there on the back burner if I need something to watch. Stargirl. I've just caught up and watched the rest of season one. Stargirl is a refreshing take on teen superheroes and is both metaphorically and literally a critique about the underbelly of the American rural dream. I probably won't stick with the show past this season, though I have enjoyed learning about DC's Golden Age Justice Society of America and Seven Soldiers of Victory. Star Trek Lower Decks, this is the first animated show since the excellent Star Trek The Animated Series that played from 1973 to 1974. I've just seen the trailer, it looks pretty funny. So yeah, this time round it's a comedy, and though I was initially rather dubious about it after having seen that trailer, it does look like something I'd like. The one reservation I have is that the show follows the lives of junior officers while I would have preferred it to be about ordinary crew, which is something we rarely see in the franchise. The Expanse. I've only included The Expanse here in my show notes because I want to know what's happened to it. And I did a tiny bit of digging and I just don't know, but as far as I can see... It has not been cancelled. It will still return for season 5. It just appears to be delayed due to COVID-19. Keep telling yourself that. I hope that's the case and I hope it comes back. It deserves one more season. And leaving TV behind now for a bit and moving on to Comic-Con at home. Because I wasn't paying attention, I missed the free Comic-Con at home which all happened online, I did hear it wasn't great. And looking at the video panels, I don't think there is much that would have interested me anyway, even if it was something I could have attended in real life. I don't know. I don't know. It is nice meeting fellow geeks, though. Oh, man, when's that going to happen again? Do you remember when I went to Comic-Con London? Man, that was exhausting. Ah. Oh. And that is it for Culture This Week. Mostly. I have something to say later on in the show, but that's as much culture that I wanted to talk about this week. Let's move on to technology and TweetDeck. Currently, Twitter is the only social media I use on a regular basis. So if you want to contact me, although email is best, this isn't a bad way of contacting me either. Because... I use Twitter for a lot of stuff. A scheduler like Twuffer is essential for what I do. Unfortunately, Twitter killed Twuffer not so long ago by blocking their API access. 
I found out that a similar third-party tweet scheduler called TweetDeck had been acquired by Twitter, and now it's something that we can use for free. I tried it out, and compared to Twitter, it's clunky, and I also have problems displaying the entire page of the app on my desktop's non-HD 1600 by 900 screen. And that's Twitter. It works, but I'm not really that impressed by it. While we're on the subject of technology, this is a bit meta, but it's still technology, I'm still writing show notes in ANSI plain text with Unix line endings for both maximum compatibility and because I'm lazy. Yeah, it's not even using Unicode. I had made another stab at using HTML5, but man, no way, man. I don't want to do that. Writing notes that way is unbearably slow. And the same goes for Markdown before anyone suggests that I use that. Not that anyone suggests anything, but... Oh, God, here we go again. Enough with the passive aggression, Roy. Anyway, the new thing I'm doing is that I'm finally embedding the show notes as metadata into the Crash MP3 files. Of course, no podcast manager and barely any media players display this, and even with media players like VLC, you have to dig down a little. I'm doing this anyway to future-proof my episodes by making the MP3s self-contained. Of course, if someone accidentally reads those MP3 files with a player that has a metadata editor, they might wipe it out. So maybe it's not that future-proof, but I'm doing it anyway. It's the equivalent of embedding the runtime library into a Microsoft QuickBasic executable that you've just compiled. It makes a slightly bigger file, but you don't have to worry that the end user will be missing out on a component. Okay, it's not really like that, but I've been playing around with Microsoft QBasic lately. I used to do that a lot, and that's why that's in my mind at the moment. Next, Black Lives Matter. The campaign is changing tech culture, I think, for the better. Out are blacklists and whitelists, and terms like master and slave drives. I approve of that. I have never entirely felt comfortable with the old nomenclature, even if that stuff never bothered you before. As logical techie nerds, we hate ambiguity and replacing master and slave with, for example, primary and secondary just sounds easier to understand especially if you're a novice techie. I'm not going to jump down someone's throat for the occasional slip of the tongue or brain, but neither am I going to be kind to those who just relish getting upset that yellow, brown, red and black people have actual feelings. I think that railing against simple politeness is a nasty little hobby of the privileged whiny few. Next in tech... Amazon's response to Nazi products. I covered Amazon's profiteering from the sale of neo-Nazi goods in some detail back in pod 261 last year. 
I'm not the first person to have done so, or the last. BBC Click recently looked into the subject. But unlike the BBC, I was completely ignored by Amazon, who said at the time in an email, Please bear in mind, however, that as a retailer, our goal is to provide customers with the broadest selection possible so they can find, discover, and buy any item they might be seeking. Because our customers represent a wide spectrum of opinions, that selection may include some items which people find objectionable. Right, Nazi products are merely objectionable. While I'm glad that Jeff Bezos has apparently suddenly developed a social conscience and now supports BLM, I'm curious why he thought ignoring this was okay before the BBC took an interest and before this current Black Lives Matter movement. Okay, that's heavy sarcasm. I'm not curious at all because, as we know, it's the size of your platform, not your voice, that matters. Incidentally, I also tried contacting just about every publisher I could find, but at the time, none were interested. As an ordinary consumer, if you see something disgusting on Amazon, write directly to Jeff's Minions via his personal email address, which is jeff, J-E-F-F, at amazon.com. And while we're on the roll, let's move on to creative and talk about diversity and representation in genre. This is a subject I've broached many, many times in this podcast, but since I talked about the light fantastic earlier, let's first talk about the late, great Terry Pratchett. On the subject of Terry Pratchett's consciousness of diversity and representation in his entire canon, I think he was kind of half-assed about it. I also remember him blowing a gasket and saying the same old tide nonsense about how he didn't see colour when called to task. That was also as Demi Bottom as J.K. Rowling exclaiming Dumbledore's gayness by previous semi-buttocked implication rather than by explicitly stating in the text that Dumbledore snogged Grindelwald. Let's not even begin to get into her bizarre views on transgender people. Pratchett was better than most, but until Pyramids? No, I don't think he was that diverse a writer. And yes, I've read Johnny and the Bomb, and no, it is not realistic that a black character would be lovely to an arsehole bedecked in racist symbology, even if only for the sake of protective camouflage. Yes, That character probably learns the error of his ways, but don't expect me as a brown person to be all warm and fuzzy about it. Oh, and Two Flower, by the way. That's not diversity, that's Orientalism light. On the other hand, I'll let that one go because I enjoy Two Flower's tourist naivete, and on holiday I look like a darker version of him, and he occasionally gets to stick the boot in, as I mentioned earlier when talking about the light fantastic. I am still a fan of Terry Pratchett and a fan of J.K. Rowling, and I'm not about to cancel them. Like I said, they are better at inclusiveness than most white western genre creatives. But I'm also not a blinkered suck-up who treats them and others who create the stuff we in geekdom love as gods. 
I'm saying this because I remember a long time ago, a white male fellow nerd tried to, don't you agree, me, that Terry Pratchett was an inclusive writer. And can you just believe those non-white ingrates, blah, 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 blah. I'm paraphrasing. He wasn't quite that rude. He was more weaselly than that. And now I feel bad for having bad mouth weasel kind. Let's just say he was a little bit of a git. As nerds of colour, we've all heard this bollocks before. If you are a creative, don't be passive. Be active in being inclusive in the worlds you create. Because those worlds generally reflect the world where everything is a shade. Unless you are deliberately creating some revolting dystopic monoculture. If you're not sure about how to write a minority character, ask someone who shares those characteristics. Don't just make them a skin-deep minority who underneath is actually a straight, white, able-bodied chap in his mid-twenties to early thirties, because that's what you are, or you just couldn't be bothered to do the research. And remember, it's not only about race and gender, it's also about portrayals of disability and neurodiversity. And if all this sounds like a bit much, well, I'm not getting any younger, and I'm saying this in my pod right now as a way of standing up and being counted in this current climate of change, because I have never found any genre character or setting in literature, cinema, or gaming relatable to me as a South Asian neurodiverse male. Diversity means putting those different people in. Now you've done that, well done. But are those people just window dressing, or do they have agency? Do you remember how in that Hobbit movie, what was it called, let's see, The Desolation of Smaug, there were non-white characters in Lake Town who did little apart from appear on camera. They were there only because of fans like me shouting for a very long time. That's lip service diversity with zero representation. Then there's also all the other roles in genre media like acting, writing, publishing. I could go on forever. Despite media supposedly being left-leaning and liberal, where the hell are people like me? It's 2020 now, and I've been talking about this since I was a child and online, and in my first blog post back in 2011. If you're not convinced, a final shot at creatives who think that all this diversity business is stifling. Tell you what, do a little experiment. Why don't you just ignore diversity and representation and keep doing exactly what you're doing, and you will end up with fans like Weaselface, who I mentioned earlier, and the Gamergate, and Comicsgate's dickheads. Stick that up your wizarding robes. Oh, had a lot to get off my chest there. Let's move on. And the last item today <laughs> is something a little lighter. New old theme music. The first theme of this show that you ever heard was a free electric guitar riff from a music magazine CD from the early 2000s or 1990s, not quite sure which, that I heavily reworked in Audacity. 
Then, over the years, I have tried many others, but many don't sound upbeat enough or are a little too long. I did think at one stage that I'd quite like just having a gong at the beginning, <laughs> and then I could enter the podcast like Ming the Merciless. But I have now settled, for the time being at least, on something you have no doubt already heard. And that is my own take on George Formby's triple strum played on my banjolele. And by my own take, I mean I played in a different kind of claw hammer manner that I've never seen anyone else play it. Yeah, you've heard that before. You've heard it many times before in the mid-roll advertisement for my latest novel. I think I might change that mid-roll ad to something a little fresher and repurpose the triple strum as the theme music to Crash. And you can hear that new theme music in this episode. And that's it for the creative section. We are now in the after show section. About time. Well, this one went on for quite a long time. And I'm just going to tell you that the Doctor Who marathon will continue. It's supposed to be one general geek show, followed by one Doctor Who episode, followed by one geek show, that kind of thing. But I've gone out of order a little bit because I haven't watched The Ark in Space yet, and I had so much building up in the general geek show that I thought I'd do that one first. Anyway, I'll be doing The Ark in Space next. So please tell your friends to subscribe to Crash. Crash, the show that you've just listened to, is produced, presented, and edited by me, Roy Martha, a writer. Martha is spelt M-A-T-H-U-R. You can find more about me or get in touch at RoyMartha.com. If you want to help, please review and rate the show on whatever platform you listen and recommend it to a friend. Although I quite like positive reviews on Apple Podcasts. Let's not mention that one one-star review by someone who deserves a damn good boot up the arse. Metaphorically speaking, of course. You were listening to Captain Roy's Rocket Radio Show, Acronominize 2, Crash. I know Acronominize is not a word. The UK podcast for the culture geek, technology nerd and creative wizard. This was episode 326, recorded on Friday the 31st of July 2020, but ending on Saturday the 1st of August 2020. At 000801. Thanks for listening and bye bye for now. Bye.